Go for it, Johnny. I'm ready. Hello. Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. With you as always, Christopher Funderburg. The enthusiastic Christopher Funderburg, bringing high energy to the low energy Pink Smoke Podcast. (sighs) Which is what I hope that I supply in abundance myself, John Cribbs, the low energy partner of the Pink Smoke. But we are both excited, though, to be honest, because we're going to be talking about one of our very favorite authors, a personal hero of mine, probably both of ours, uh, Mr. Donald E. Westlake. Absolutely. One of the the greatest uh, crime writers of all time. Certainly one of our favorite. I, if you know anything about me, named my son Parker after his character that he wrote the uh, Parker novels under the pseudonym Richard Stark. He's one of our very favorites. And John, what are we talking about today on this podcast? What we're talking about today is a posthumous publication of Mr. Westlake's brought out by the excellent publication Hard Case Crime, which has uh, doled out several of his uh, books, both the reprints of former books and also unpublished uh, novels that he had lying around after he passed away, sadly, in 2008. And the name of this particular book is Forever and a Death, which has a very interesting background in how it came to be and why it was never, why it never saw the light of day. Yes. This, if you know anything about this book, you have heard that, you know, before it was even published, that Donald Westlake had been hired in the 90s around the time of GoldenEye to write a James Bond movie, to write a script for a James Bond movie. And that when the movie didn't get made, he took his treatment and turned it into a James Bond novel is what I always heard. Is that what you not always heard about it? That's exactly what I had heard. Exactly. And um, just as kind of like a little preview before we get into the meat of this thing, I fully expected this to be a James Bond-esque book. Well, that's the thing. It's called Forever and a Death. It's the cell is that it's the James Bond novel that never was. Look, it says that on the back of the book, the Bond that never was. And, yes, uh, the cover evokes a Bond book, an Ian Fleming Bond book. Definitely, I, I don't criticize them for deciding yeah. to, to uh, you know, kind of Let's announce it. Let's not dig into it too much. Well, right I won't, I won't. I just, oh. I'll just say that, like, you know, that was the pitch was Donald D. Westlake, James Bond book. And as someone who was a fan of Westlake and James Bond, I went, whoa, that has got my attention right away. So exactly. the only thing I'll say before we get into it is, Maybe don't go into this expecting a James Bond book. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what we do on when we do these these pulp fictions on the Pink Smoke podcast is we do uh, with the novel we're talking about. We pair it. We do an aperitif and a dessert. So before we talk about the novel, we talk about something that you should sample, something you should ingest, something you should consume media-wise to sort of prime your taste for the book we're going to talk about before you read the book. And then when we're done discussing the book, we'll give it a dessert pairing, which after you've read this book, an interesting place that you could go with it. John, what is your, I will, I will start. How about with my aperitif pairing? Yes, you should start. Um, because it's very easy and obvious. And I think you should watch, and it's even too obvious for your eyes only, before you read this book. And it's one of the best uh, Bond films. To me, it's probably my second or third favorite. The Spy Who Loved Me is my very favorite. Obviously, I'm a Roger Moore fan uh, in terms of the Bond. But it's, for your eyes only, is like the most 
sober of the Bonds, even more than the Connery films, which have a tendency to be, they're not blockbusters, they're a little more scaled back, but they're bombastic and weird. For Your Eyes Only is like, uh, it's sort of, it's almost the most serious of them before you get the, the Daniel Craig, like fake seriousness of Bond. You know what I mean? And for me, when I was reading this book and trying to locate what the Westlake novel was and maybe envision it on screen in the Bond universe and sort of try and reconstruct what he was going for, For Your Eyes Only was about the only thing I could connect it to. You know, it's sort of more modest in its villain. Its big climax is like grappling hooks and crossbows, you know, and its car chase is really, really cool at the beginning, but it's not like um, submarine cars, you know, in ejector seats. It's like a little jalopy flying down a mountainside, you know? Yeah. And I think that, you know, that of the Bonds, if you haven't seen it, you know, uh, for your eyes eyes only, it's a good sort of um, touchstone for thinking about what, Westlake might be and what he might have been trying to bring to it or the only sort of curve he could bring to Bond because Westlake as a writer is hard to connect to what Bond is I think and Mm -hmm. that when you hear Westlake and Bond it's not like you know peanut butter and jelly peas and carrots it's a little like oh that's interesting what could that be is a little bit of the reaction I had and so I think that the closest that I could think of like well, what would a Bond uh, Westlake be would be for your eyes only. So that's my aperitif. John, what do you I think? Agree. I, I back that one up. I, I'm a big fan of for your eyes only. It is interesting in the way that it doesn't hit a lot of the Bond tropes that people expect, that it has a subdued villain and doesn't have the, uh, tons of gadgets and everything, but still works because the attitude is right. You know, and the idea of yeah. what's going to make this exciting and thrilling doesn't have to involve a submarine car like you said it has you know it can make it interesting just by having a guy climbing up uh, you know an impossibly tall mountain you know to get to the bad guy's lair yeah and um, it has a bond girl that's like a kind of westlake character you know the the carol bouquet character is not like uh, an octopusy you know what I mean? Like it's a more sort of realistic, grounded Westlake woman. The women in Westlake books are not outrageously sexy and femme fatales and all that. They're sort of more regular women. In yeah, it also has a comedy sensibility, as most Westlake books do, although maybe not quite as successful as Westlake in this particular film. But yeah, we'll come I mean back. the comedy. Yeah, <laughs> the comedy in For Years is only is also not. <laughs> consistent how yeah. about that <laughs> that's that's fair enough that's fair enough but no definitely a great movie and i, I love that one um I'm, I'm going to go ahead and stick with mine uh even though it was made before i read the book and again just anticipating that it would be bond-esque and that the basic plot the, the the only thing i knew going into it was they wanted the next bond movie the one that westlake was supposedly working on to do with the transfer of the sovereignty of hong kong from British to the People's Republic of China. They wanted to make it like... You're a, picking Chinese box. <laughs> exactly. They're, 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 they're going for something relevant, you know, something that also could be historic uh, and then have, you know, huge political implications that, you know, I, would be an idea for James Bond to go into. Not a bad idea. So going into this, I thought that was going to be, play a big part. Like it does 
somewhat in the movie that ended up coming out, which was uh, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, which, by the way, is one of the worst Bond movies ever made. (laughs) But anyway, based on that, I thought, well, my favorite film to deal with that specific uh, pop cultural and global event is a little movie called Knock Off. Oh uh, my God, yes. Written by the great Stephen E. D'Souza. Uh, yeah. which deals with... Um, the writer of Die Hard. Yes, many, many a number great of great, great films. And um, and he wrote a movie about knockoff jeans that are laden with nanobombs. Yes, which is a very... <laughs> like when people try and write a Bond film, they think like, gene bombs. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. They That's don't definitely think, a uh, gimmick that could go into a Bond movie without a doubt. And in place of Bond here, of course, we have Jean-Claude Van Damme with sidekick Rob Schneider, probably why most people gave it, you know, why they all culminate to make a 8% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. But I'm here to say I enjoy that film very much. It's great. It's, it's one of the great, there's two insane, well, three of them, I guess if you throw Hard Target in, insane Van Damme movies of that era of knockoff, uh, Double Team, and Hard Target. And it's the craziest of them. Oh, uh, yeah. You know? Yeah, it takes the cake without a doubt. I know Hark was, uh, you know, disappointed in the film. He was disappointed in his career in Hollywood and ran back uh, to his own country. But I have to say, Mr. Hark, I enjoy both of those movies immensely. And you should have stuck around and done some more crazy movies like this because they're great. I will, of course, say that Knock Off and Forever in a Day have nothing to do with each other (laughs) whatsoever. Yeah, I can't can't find a single connection. I think it's a good thing to bring up. If you try and make a Bond movie, but you don't exactly make a Bond movie. And like Bond knockoffs that aren't really Bond movies are a big subgenre, like things that clearly started as failed James Bond knockoff ideas. And knockoff is a perfect movie for talking about knockoffs. That's a great, great (laughs) in that respect as well. The knockoff is the king of the knockoffs. But, and they end up something else and weirder, which is a good lead into talking about Forever in a Death, which I was shocked to read when I read it. It's not a fucking James Bond spy thriller, even slightly. No. <laughs> it's sort of like knockoff where you maybe have an idea of like doing the same thing James Bondy, and it becomes, you know, Van Damme slapping Rob Schneider's ass with an eel in a rickshaw. <laughs> you know, like it just becomes something else. Fucking exactly. way crazier. Exactly. So what we do have here, I mean, what must have been, I think, the crux of the Westlake pitch for the Bond movie was a villain, right? Yeah. Uh, rich industrialist, Richard Curtis. who Clearly based on Richard Branson. <laughs> or Richard Curtis, the, the filmmaker who, you know, I couldn't get out <laughs> of my head while I was reading this book. Who comes up with, well, he gets a team together to use soliton wave technology, which are explosions that create underground waves through tunnels that will liquefy the landfill underneath an island, which will effectively demolish the buildings on the surface. That's the idea, right? So we know he has this technology. That's the lead-in. And he's going to do something bad with it, is teased throughout the book. You know, he has evil plans that he's going to do this to a heavily populated area and then escape with plundered gold via submarine. (laughs) Yeah. That's the He's going to do something Bondian, bad and get rich. James yeah. Bondian super, uh, super villain plan, which, you know, we've seen, you know, in Spy Who Loved Me, he has an idea to flood the world, you know, so it's an idea that's come up. And I think that most closely this, the ending especially, resembles, if anything, the end of View to a Kill where Christopher Walken's character is going, planning to 
uh, set off the um, San Andreas uh, fault and flood Silicon Valley. So there's yeah. a lot of like underground tunnel scenes towards the end. And that's sort of the one connection you can make. So clearly like the one thing is um, the, 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 the villain who has this world destroying idea in order to like Goldfinger, I guess, steal gold yeah. and be rich. What you don't have is James Bond at all. <laughs> yes. The character of James Bond is really portioned out to other characters throughout the book. Well, what's so strange about it is there's no main character. Like the villain, this, this Richard Branson knockoff, you know, uh, this Richard Curtis. Now you've got me thinking about like four weddings and a funeral. <laughs> um, this, that character is the main character in most yes. ways. Yes. You know, it's sort of like in the way a lot of uh, Bond films or even blockbusters, the villain is the co-lead in many ways and, and frequently the more interesting character. You know, I think that a lot of people would rate the Bond films according to how interesting the villain is. You know, I think that that's what makes Goldfinger so beloved to people is that Goldfinger's really fucking weird and a good villain, you know? And, and why you know, people are obsessed with, with Spectre and Blofeld and all of that is the villain is really important to them. And so the villain gets center stage even more in this book than he does in a Bond film. And they do, but they don't replace Bond with anybody. You know, who would you, let me ask you, I was reading it this time because it, it feels, the book when you first read it feels like they set up this guy, George Manville, who's an engineer working for Richard Curtis for the evil billionaire, right? Mm -hmm. Who turns out to have more integrity than, uh, than the billionaire is expecting. And it seems like, okay, this guy is gonna be the Bond stand-in. But then he disappears from the book for 150 pages, mm -hmm. you know? And this is a long book, I should mention too. It's, only, it's like 450 pages. How long is it, the actual? It's uh, comparatively four, to other Westlake books, I would say it feels long. Yeah. It's massive. It's 444 pages. So he just disappears. And when I first read it, when I first read it, when I was reading it, I felt like, okay, get back to George Manville, get back to the engineer who's like a little more tough than we think he's going to be and a little more badass and is a little more John McClane, you know, mm -hmm. than he is than he is James Bond. And like, that's a sort of interesting variation, it, but it doesn't. And I realized, oh, he's not meant to be the Bond stand-in. He doesn't get to save the day during the climax. And as always, I should mention, John and I talk spoilers on these podcasts. John and I discuss them in detail. And if you're worried about things being spoiled, then you know, watch Knockoff and For Your Eyes Only and then read the book and come back to us. And uh, But he doesn't even get to save the day. The sort of uh, ding batty <laughs> environmentalist woman uh, is the one who disarms the bombs at the end of the film and he's just there to like as a reward for her she gets to kiss him at the end after she saved the day he's just sort of like arm candy for the final fourth of the book even once he's back it's not like he does anything heroic you know he goes and gets the police you know <laughs> Yeah, part of that makes me wonder how subversive Westlake was being with this book, knowing that it was never going to be a Bond movie, that you know his treatment was never going to be used. How much he considered it a statement on Bond fiction or Bond movies in general, or the Bond formula, where he portions out all the Bond duties so like one person will fight the mercenaries, another one is wined and dined by the bad guy, 
one gets captured and then escapes, you know, there are all these different characters that he keeps allotting these duties to without there being one specific hero. And again, you get Richard Curtis, who is this guy who from the very beginning is the one who has a conflict. You know, he's the one who the, they test this Soliton waves on this abandoned Island in the process, an environmentalist who has dived into the water to try to stop him has been seriously injured. They put bring her on the boat, and his idea is he is going to make it look like she was killed, basically to get this other environmentalist off his back, right? Like it's not even yeah. like she's a threat to him in any way. He's yeah. just like doing it to like for a political move more than anything. Yeah. Um, but it's an amoral thing. But he's trying to get like the captain to to do it for him, and the book becomes this story about uh, what this immensely powerful person can and cannot get people to do for him. Well, you it's know, a book about his, henchmen. Yeah, it's his, his manipulation of people. about henchmen. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's the story of Richard Curtis and all of his henchmen and Planet Watch, which is the name of the environmental group, and like the Planet Watch guy and his henchmen, you know, mm-hmm. and what they're willing to do. And it starts with, that's what's so funny about the George Manville character, right? The engineer is that, oh, he's going to be Bond. He's not. He's just another one of the henchmen that the book wants to talk about. And so what this book really is, is about, I agree with you that I think it's a sort of commentary on these Bond movies that always just have, you know, control rooms with 20 dudes working in them. And a, the villain turns to the ship captain and is like, dispose of Mr. Bond. And he just goes and does it. Exactly. This book is about how do you get all of these people in a criminal enterprise to go along with your massive criminal scheme. And in some ways it's an extended, uh, not joke, because it takes it seriously, but it's a sort of playful deconstruction of the idea of like, what is a henchman's life like? What does it mean to be a henchman? You know? <laughs> exactly. That's why I wonder, you know, how much of it Westlake wanted to be a comment on that kind of a situation where you have these faceless, you know, henchmen moving left and right, that Curtis has this captain who is not a villain at all, He's just worried about his job and feeding his family. And he tells him, do this thing for me. Do this horrible crime for me because you owe me. And the guy obviously does not want to do it. And then when George Manville gets involved, it becomes... Well, let me just say what the captain is. Hmm? Yeah. Well, just the captain. So they bring the injured diver, Kim Baldor, on the boat. And Richard Curtis sees her and is like, hey ship captain, you're the ship's doctor, you're the trained medic, what condition is she in? And the ship's captain is like, oh, she's going to live. And Richard Curtis says, well, you know, but she could die, right? And the captain's like, no, man, she's going to live. And Richard Curtis is like, yeah, but but if she dies, like, you get to keep your job. Wouldn't that be great? You know, if if she died, you get to keep your job. Otherwise, these environmentalists, you know, uh, they're going to ruin our job. If she dies, then I can get Planet Watch off my back. And the exactly. ship captain is like, like, oh, I get you. Wait, what? What the fuck are you asking me to do? I'm a ship captain. And then you get George I'm Mandel. not even a good enough doctor to kill her like medical malpractice. He literally has a line that's like, <laughs> I'm not a good enough doctor to kill her by being a bad doctor and get away right. with it. And make it look like, yeah, it wasn't murder. <laughs> but then you get Richard Manville who finds out she's alive and confronts him George about Manville. it. George Manville. George Manville tells him that, you know, 
I saw it. She's, I, I visited her. She's clearly alive. She's clearly getting better. Why did you tell us that she had died? And now he has to deal with Manville saying, hey, listen, I got a big score coming up. You're going to be a really rich man. I'm going to let you in on this. You're going to get $10 million in gold if, you, if you're with me. And it doesn't and work George on George. Manville has a, has a great reaction, which is like, wait, what, gold? You're going to give me gold? <laughs> you know, and that's why it is. It's a commentary in a lot of ways on these Bond villain plans where the Bond villain is like, how would you like $10 million? And somebody's tempted. Whereas in real life, you're like, hey, you want $10 million in gold to uh, keep your mouth shut while the ship captain kills this lady? And he's like, wait, what? <laughs> you can totally see Westlake, you know, thinking up a Bond scenario where Blofeld says, throw him in the piranha tank. And the henchman goes, yeah, wait, what? <laughs> wait, wait, that's I, why I've been I keeping these piranhas a, alive? I work for a security I, firm. I, <laughs> yeah, I have been cleaning that piranha tank every day. You know, they eat like 200 pounds of beef every day. I can't just throw a person in there. They'll die. Wait, you want me to? Throw a person in there. Yeah. Something that never comes up. I think this is probably why, if this really was Westlake's interest, I feel like it is the most interesting thing about the book. The, I think the most interesting character becomes Colin uh, Trevor, who comes in in the third act. Colin of the Bennett. Book. Colin Bennett. Oh, is it Bennett? Yeah. The, the Samoan guy who's like the hired muscle. Oh, I didn't think his name was Trevor. Isn't it Trevor? Anyway. Maybe thinking of Colin Trevor. Oh, no, it's Bennett, isn't it? It's Colin Bennett's life going to ruin Jerry Diedrich was going to ruin Colin Bennett's life, and that was that. There was no second thoughts about it. Feel right. better, so, Jerry? Yeah. <laughs> so it's Colin is, is what it is. So Colin is definitely like the character I think Westlake is most invested in and thinks is most interesting. He's this sad sack who's been out of work, desperate for a job ever since being let go by Curtis over an, uh, you know, an accident that also an resulted in accident. an industrial accident that also resulted, resulted in a death that Colin feels, you know, obviously very remorseful about as well. So he gets a call from Curtis who's just lost his top mercenary <laughs> to, yeah. uh, to George Manville and says, I need you to go and kill these people more or less without saying it like that. I first he says, I need you to go spy on these people. And then it becomes like, yeah, take them out one by one if that's if that's what naturally comes to you you know he sort of yeah kind of puts it all in it you you do you decide what's best and colin and it just, also keeps yeah colin also it keeps piling up where it's like oh, i gotta kill this guy i bet richard curtis wouldn't want me to kill him but like uh, it's gonna be bad for me if i don't like <laughs> yeah. this will just be smoother for me with getting my construction job back if I kill this dude. Well, that's what's great about Colin is like he needs so little prompting too. He doesn't need to be promised $10 million in gold. He needs to be promised a job. He know? needs to be given a handshake. Yeah. It's like Richard Curtis giving Pat him on the a back. Yeah. handshake. He's like ready to murder. You know what also, just when you mentioned that the top henchman, uh, what is that character's name? Palafrey? Yes, Pal I didn't write it down, but yeah. What I like, too, about that guy, that guy gets killed, right, in the book by George Manville. And he gets killed because he's fucking bored. He's hired to take, they take George Manville out to this remote ranch in Australia. And it's Palafrey who's just barely survived uh, Manville's wrath earlier in the book. Like, Manville gets the jump on him, kills a, another henchman, and, you know, sort of humiliates Palafrey, Pally, inadvertently. And so then Palafrey and some other thugs kidnap Manville, bring 
bring him out to Richard Curtis's ranch. He has, Manville has like a uh, friendly dinner with Richard, you know, the like, we're just friends here, Mr. Manville dinner. And then he's sort of under house arrest and Palafrey's leading the house arrest. And uh, he just gets fucking bored sitting on this ranch out in Australia and gets like this super thin lead on where the diver, Kim Baldur, might be and is like, oh yeah, I better go check that better go check this lead and sort of like throws his shit in the car and goes to leave, you know, very after, sloppy. Like, after finding out that Manville has disappeared. Yeah. They don't yeah, know where Manville's he... been listening to him and is planning something and he's just, he's just bored. He just doesn't want to sit on the ranch. There's this great line about like how TV can't, hold his attention for more than an hour but the other thugs it seems to be able to hold their attention forever you know what i mean (laughs) and he's like a shit man he was like a drug smuggler for the colombians who got burned by the dea and sort of was unemployable and then came to work for richard curtis but he's a seaman he's a guy who always wants to be on the water and being sent way far inland like curtis doesn't understand this henchman does not want to sit at a ranch watching TV. He's a guy who's on the ocean shooting people, you know? Like, he doesn't want to babysit this engineer who may or may not be a good or a bad guy. He doesn't even know if he's allowed to lean on the engineer anymore or if they've, like, reteamed. And so he's just like, well, I got to go. I got to go check this lead, <laughs> you know, that he doesn't at that point. Like, at that point, Richard Curtis doesn't want Kim Baldur killed. And so that's why he gets done in is because he's just bored. He's just bored with it. It's such a great uh, sort of twist on the idea of, like, God, how could you wrangle a bunch of, like, lowbow criminals? Yeah. So he gets, he gets bumped off by Manville. So he's out of the picture. Curtis has to reach out to somebody else. He thinks of this guy who he had fired a while back. Not a mercenary and not a, you know, a seasoned, you know, soldier or <laughs> someone who's used to violence, but just decides that this is the right guy for the job because I guess of his slavish devotion to Curtis. He steps in and he becomes sort of like, I guess the reason that he works so well as Westlake character is that he kind of fits in with that like George Ole kind of mentality, you know, the, the bad guy from the Sour Lemon score, the Parker book, yeah. or or the bad guy from the seventh who just happens to uh, stumble upon this this loot that that uh, Parker yeah. and his friends have. Yeah, the dumb college kid who exactly. kills the woman just, with a broadsword. And he kind of pops up in that same sort of like third act that these characters usually pop up in in Westlake novels where he kind of becomes the main character for that stretch. And again, like you pointed out, Manville has become like, you know, has been totally sidelined at this point. So this is the guy that we're focusing on and we're just kind of seeing how he takes it one step further where, you know, it goes from maybe I should kidnap this, maybe I should, or I'm spying on this guy. I think they know that I'm spying on them. I should kidnap one of them. Then I guess I'll torture him for information. Then I guess I'll just kill him. Just kind yeah. of like how like, he's pushed. Oh, that- that information's no good. I gotta kill him. <laughs> right, just how he gets pushed further and further. And yeah. it's funny, too, that it says something about Curtis, who, you know, we know is this multimillionaire who's fallen upon hard times. He's been kicked out of his business holdings in Hong Kong, and it ha- holds a grudge against uh, the whole country. It just says something about how he, who's who's trying to, like, rebuild his empire through this horrible act of killing all these people and running off with the gold, you would think that he would plan things out better, these very important things that need to line up right before the end, that he suddenly hires whoever. 
<laughs> you know, to like take care of this operation. They even kidnapped two characters at one point and put them to work in the tunnels. It's yeah. like, that's a really big risk to have these people here at all. It's like, well, yeah, well, we need manpower. We got to get this thing going in time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's how exactly. he, you know, gets tripped up by people like a spy in his organization or people just who are, he thinks are going to get the job done for him. People like Colin who, you know, why would he think that he would be capable of doing these things, let alone do them efficiently? And in the end, Colin is the one who's given the count, the, the countdown, right? He's going to set off the timers that this entire plot is hinged on. Why would you give him that responsibility? Richard Curtis, I have some questions about what you think is important in this operation. And another kind of subversive thing I think that Westlake does in terms of the Bond or the thriller or the, or the, uh, the, the crime novel even formula is that the heist of the gold is totally barely touched upon at all. We don't know yeah. how they got all this gold. It just shows up magically yeah. at the end don't of the Don't they just book. drive a bulldozer through the bank wall? Isn't that all they do? It is really just brushed off. Just like, that's not important. I don't care about that. What's important is that they're going to set off this soliton wave. Yeah. <laughs> and I find it hilarious that he's like, it doesn't matter. You know how to, yeah. you, you know, gold comes from a yeah. place. The bad guy gets the gold. It happens. I'm not going to go into the details of that where it's yeah. like, really? Cause that would be exciting. I would like to hear about that. Yeah. Well, that's what's funny too. Again, it's a book about henchmen and what these henchmen's life are like. He's working with a corrupt union contractor in Hong Kong that he has a long relationship with Jackie Chan. And at one point, a box with a submarine shows up at Jackie Chan's warehouse that Richard Curtis has ordered. And he's like, I wonder what that fucking thing is for. You know, and he tells Richard Curtis, like, yeah, it's here, it's in the box. Like, can people fit inside of that thing? And it's the box that Richard Curtis, it's the submarine that Richard Curtis is going to use to smuggle the gold after the Soliton wave submerges everything. They're going to be able to get it out in the submarine, right? Mm -hmm. but it's like think about that if you're a henchman it's just like box mark death ray shows up at the warehouse one day and you're like what do you, do you need me to do with that and he's like no don't touch that that's for the most important part of the plan and you're like okay it says death ray on it is it like should we wear lead aprons around it like what do we do with that it's just like <laughs> tiny submarine shows up for this construction project you know <laughs> that's that's i signed for it it's my name on i guess i guess that's okay like, do we need to, does somebody need to oil it up? Like, what do we, what do we do with it? I can't find you a diver, by the way. What? You can't find me a diver? <laughs> Jesus Christ. I know my diver. Got <laughs> all these, all these setbacks for poor Richard Curtis. Yeah. Also one thing, maybe because he was described uh, in sort of vague um, Southeast Asian terms. Uh, Colin Bennett reminded me of like a, um, and he's like, funny but brutal he reminded me of um taika watiti character almost oh interesting. like he's like a yeah. big dopey like good-natured sad sack you know what i mean like yeah. a lot of his characters are sort of like good-natured sad sacks with like some measure of violence to them you know like you sort of feel like if he were going to write a crime novel that would be the bad guy you know what I mean? Like that would be a Taika Watiti bad guy if he were to do a Tarantino film. Is sort of was my feeling on on uh, 
on on that character was also what I was reminded of. Oh, one thing I did yeah, want I to mention, cast, you mentioned... Uh, oh, sorry. No, 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 go on. We don't nope. need to move, because I was going to move on. Yeah, no, I was just going to say I would have cast uh, Jang Wen as, in this role. That's kind of oh, sweet. Oh, yeah. You know, kind of like a heavy set sad sack kind of guy, so that's yeah. just what popped up in my head. That would be a good choice, too. That would be a good choice. I was picturing the dad of the um, of the teenage girl from uh, Hunt for the Wilder People. Mm-hmm. You know, when they he gets the selfies with them and everything. Yeah, yeah. With uh, Ricky, like that guy as as uh, as uh, Colin. But that could work I was going to say you you mentioned the um, the bad guy in the seventh and George Ull, the, and talked about the structure where. This book is also structured like a lot of Westlake books are. Almost all of the Parker books are structured the same way. There are four parts, and the first part is like everything falls apart, four sections, and they're labeled one, two, three, four each time, and then have individual chapters within them. And the first part, like everything goes to shit. And then the second part is the main character seems to get everything back on track, but at the very end of it, somebody, something crazy happens to blow it towards the ending and then it jumps in the third section to like a not unrelated but secondary character who's sort of been lurking in the background and makes them the main character for that third section and then the fourth section is like the main character from the third section and our hero colliding together for the climax and that's how all Westlake books are structured and this book keeps to that structure which I was interested by as well how could that have been it just seems another way in like I whatever treatment he wrote for MGM for Bond to make the Bond movie, it just couldn't have been anything like this book. No. There's just no treatment he's handing them. That is the first two sections are good and then Bond disappears for a quarter of it and then shows up at the end. You know what I mean? It just there's no way I don't think and we can talk about the afterward. Did you read the afterward by, by Jeff Kleeman, the uh, producer who brought him on? Yeah. That afterward sort of reeks of, um, there's something weird about it. Like, I don't buy it. Uh, like, his version of what went down with Westlake, he's got a sort of, like, producer's glibness about everything. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think this book had much of anything to do with the bond treatment he wrote apart from the solution wave and like the plan to go after Hong Kong. Yeah. Like, oh, I, I, I and then I right. would bet almost nothing else has to do with a, a bond treat. I, I think you're right. I think it's just totally retooled to just use that element of it and possibly, you know, make fun of the bond movies a little bit because like what you said earlier, when you hear Westlake meets bond, you think, Oh wow, that's two great things without realizing, oh, Westlake and Bond do not mix well together. That doesn't, that's not a formula that actually works in any way. Even if you're talking about the literary Bond, the Ian Fleming Bond, is a character yeah. I think Westlake would hate. I think he would yes. just have no interest in that character whatsoever, who's just this glib Superman who has this... Uh, who everything goes improbably right for. Yeah, right. So I don't think that's a, a good Westlake character. Westlake cares too much about blue-collar people and schlubs, you know? People who and lost things their jobs. going wrong. Yeah, yeah people who things lost their wrong, jobs. Exactly. So it's a question, I guess, of... Because what I was thinking mainly when I was having trouble kind of getting through some of the narrative of this book was... Yeah. Westlake well, that's is, the other thing, is it's not finished. 
I feel yeah. like if this no, book no, I agree. A publication I agree. with Westlake alive, it's 320 pages and it moves at light speed. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I think he probably abandoned this book at some point then, you know, or maybe just well, realizing he was going to get sued. I, I feel like that producer said, or he sensed if he tries to use any of this, he's going to get fucking sued. Yeah, by the that's a possibility. And just what, gave up. Whatever reason, I agree that it feels unfinished. You know that it definitely feels like something he put aside, probably with no interest in coming back to it. But um, when I was reading it and thinking of it as a Westlake book, I thought, well, the be- I think the best Westlake, not the not the Richard Stock, not the Parker books, but the best Westlake books uh, are in first person. You know, he's a really great yeah. first person narrator. And the way that he deals with a giant super secret conspiracy to destroy Hong Kong is that he's continually introducing new characters who then have to be filled in on everything that's happening and convinced to help. There's the lawyer, there's the Australian cop, the Singaporean cop, the Chinese cop. Yeah. Richard Curtis has to bring in all these new people, a new mercenary and a new diver, you know, that's like... It's just a constant like start starting again, you know, starting, you know, filling new people in on all the shit that's been going on, literally pages of, well, this is our experience. This is what happened. And the person deciding if they believe them, if they're yeah, going to join them. And them being before. very skeptical, yes. you know, them being uh-huh. very skeptical and sort of reasonably skeptical. And to a point where I think it emerges as the theme of the book is like, how, do, how would you convince anybody that this crazy shit is going on? And well, I think that, that that's one of his themes is that like the reason badness gets away with the world that there are that there is sort of corporatized evil done in this world is it's just so complicated to explain and the reason that he would not be would not like a bond character is because bond is like a big magic key who can open all these doors and do everything himself he's a world cop right who can go from one place to another jet set to wherever the action is and stop it from happening he's never going to have to go to you know, the local policemen and say, I need you to get a bunch of guys together so we can go stop this from happening without a day's worth of explaining and convicting. And have the local policemen say, well, let me talk to Richard Curtis first. (laughs) I need to get his statement. You know, they would just go, I'm Bond, go do what I say. Right. But that's also, that's the flip side of the supervillain. Like I'm the supervillain, do what I say. This book is about like, people don't do what you say. Period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, even the good guys who are inclined to believe you don't do what you say. You've got to convince them and bring them on your way and work these plans out with them. Yeah. And when he's like trying to like pull Manville over to his side early in the book, Curtis you know, tells him you're going to get $10 million in gold. He can't say because I'm going to destroy Hong Kong. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like he can't just fill him in on everything right there. He's just going to say, trust me it will be profitable for you to be on my side. Yeah. And not understanding argument. Yeah. Yeah. That Manville already feels guilty for the, the diver getting hit by the Soliton wave, you know, one person. (laughs) Yeah. One person getting hit after being told, get out of the water. There's no fail safe Mm -hmm. that he's already, you know, ready to quit the job and feeling awful that let alone, he's going to, you know, be happy to see, see his engineering used to kill thousands exactly so i think that's definitely the angle that uh, westlake goes for this is you know on both sides how it's not it's not possible to just be one person and take on the world that the world is specifically geared 
to, like you said, let bad things happen and stop good people from stopping the bad things. Yeah, that it's just one of the unfortunate artifacts of the world, you know, is that like it's really, it's really hard to change the flow of something going on, you know, and that your stories sound crazy. You know, yeah. when you try and explain what's happening, they sound uh, a little weird and that the respectable rich person is going to get the benefit of the doubt. Although I also like when he first goes to the Australian police officer, or he doesn't go, uh, the Planet Watch people, Jerry Diedrich, Luther, and Kim Baudor, after she escapes the bad guys in the boat, uh, the diver who's been injured goes and hooks up with their Planet Watch people again, and they go to the Australian police and are like, this guy tried to kill us you know, and this bad thing's going on. And they go to Tony Fairchild, who's described as having been from a poor background. And the line is, he always assumed the richest man in the room to be the biggest villain. Mm -hmm. And so you're like, this guy's going to get it. And then he meets with Richard Curtis and he's like, I don't know, this story checks out, you know? So even the people that are on your side inherently, you know, like the strapping, ineffably good Australian police officer who has a natural distaste for rich people. And we've been told has just put away some people who were running a like a savings and loan scam, you know, in this very building where he meets Richard Curtis, he's like, hey, I just met some assholes here who I threw in prison who were staying in this place. You know, yeah, well, that's like, all great, he's going to get them. Well, that's the thing. But is he like, does yeah, well, it's the thing. It's like if you're, you know, rich industrialist, people are just going to assume you reached your success by being right. And they're going to, to hear from people who are nobodies, who are these passionate environmentalists, probably dirty, smelly environmentalists, saying he did all these villainous things. Well, of course, they're going to have an agenda against this guy. But all he has to do is release a report saying, George Manville's working for me again. We're buddies. And he's going to say, hey, I heard on the news that Manville's working with him. So you guys are clearly telling, tell, you know, telling tales out of school here. Yeah. Yeah. Your story doesn't check out. Why would Manville be working for him again? It's funny that also you mentioned the, the first person perspective. Another thing that makes this book not a slog, but feels like, okay, we're starting again. He switches perspective in each chapter. He picks a character in each chapter to show what's happening from that perspective. It's not like an omniscient third-person narrator. Its narration is always attached to a, a specific character. In this chapter, we're seeing everything from Richard Curtis's perspective. In this chapter, we're seeing everything from George Manville's. In this chapter, we're seeing everything from Kim Baldor's perspective. Even as George Manville or Richard Curtis appear in those chapters, we don't get their thoughts. We don't get their interpretation of what's happening, right? We keep jumping to new characters. But he keeps introducing small side characters and tells the chapters from their perspective and gets derailed further. Like when we're finally introduced to the Hong Kong police officer, who's going to finally take what they're saying seriously and start help them, you know, like do a raid on the suspicious construction company and all that. It's inspector Ha and we get his chapter and he's really focused on breaking up the big circle gang. You know, like that chapter is all about like Inspector Ha and the Big Circle Gang. And there's like this cop from Singapore who he doesn't like telling him some Australian cop is coming by with some environmentalists. And he's like, what is this? We're real close to nailing the Big Circle Gang. Can I just focus on that today? And it's good. It's fun. But it's also like 
starting a new book again. And this is in the last 40 pages, mm-hmm. probably, that Inspector Ha has introduced, you know, last 50 pages. And now there's this new book that's starting about the relationship between how the mainland Chinese police and the existing Hong Kong police want to deal with the big circle gang and the tensions there and police work after the handover. You know, and you're like, this is fascinating. This is great. I love this character. I love this setup. We really need to focus on the bombs here. You know, like this is a moment where it needs to be focused on the bombs and the book doesn't want to focus on the bombs the way it doesn't want to focus on the gold heist, like you're saying. No, I think he spends the most amount of time with Richard Curtis and with Colin Bennett. And as a result, we want to know more about those. We want to spend time with those characters. And when it has to go by necessity, go to another character to tell us what's happening, you know, over here, we're less interested. You know, like we want to know those guys more. We want to know the Colin Bennett character because he's the most Westlake character. He's the one yeah. that he obviously feels the most sympathy for. And, it, you know, the and scenes horror where at. Yeah, and horror at the way that he's torturing Jerry Diedrich. Yeah. How he ties it directly into the reason that, that Jerry is so obsessed with bringing down Richard Curtis turns out to be that he was, uh, that his boyfriend, Jerry right, Diedrich, the, the head of Planet Watch. Yeah. Right. Turns out that his boyfriend was the one who was killed in the accident accidentally caused by Colin uh, Bennett and in Belize he has to kill that. So, so what you have here is really cool because it's Jerry's motivation for doing this in the first place, which has started, you know, the events of the novel going forward. And you also have Colin, the, the thing that is holding him up that he absolutely does not want Richard Curtis to find out because he knows that's the one thing that will fuck everything up for him. And they, yeah. they both Let's come get his life back on track. <laughs> right, exactly. They both come together in such a beautiful way. And Colin realizes he has to kill Jerry because he cannot let Richard Curtis find this out. It's a really cool. And it's not even obsessed. Thing. Like I must kill him. It's like God. Uh, I kind of got a plan, guy. And you just said basically the only <laughs> bad thing you could wrong. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's sorry, dude. You know, I I'm not a killer, but. That's I'm surprised the things are going. I thought the payoff was going to be that he couldn't start the timer to flood the, uh, to, to cause the Soliton wave at the end because he was still going to be haunted by this memory of causing this flood that killed, yeah. killed a man. But no, I, I, he kind of teases that for a paragraph that it's that he's going to go yeah. that route, but then he kind of abandons it. But does, he yeah. definitely throws it out. There's a lot of things that are sort of teased and abandoned in it too. And that's why it feels like an finished novel where there's a few weird mistakes you know like the police officer the australian calls and you can hear all of this is so complicated it's like a big messy book too that's why it feels unfinished the Mm -hmm. australian cop calls george manville to confirm hey you're friends with george manville uh with richard curtis again right we heard in the news that he was suing you. Now we hear you guys are back together. Explain to me what's going on. I'm the Australian cop. And Richard Curtis has had Palafrey, the big heavy who gets killed out in Australia, to pretend to be George Manville on the Another phone. Another terrible decision on his part. Yeah. Where he just randomly like, you, great, you call and pretend yeah. to be him. You can do that, right? Why, did, why would he think that he would be good at doing something like that? And then he does an F minus job, but the cop still believes him. But what I don't understand, there's like a little mistake where he has the cop call Singapore when we know Palafrey is in Australia still. And it's like, why not just have 
him call Australia, like, why have it be mixed up like that? There's just a lot that's like somebody needed to come in here and say, like, that doesn't make sense. You can tie this together better. Yeah. You know, like, it's just a mess. There's just like little things that need to be like, tie this together better. I also felt like it feels like a really missed opportunity to have him try and blackmail George Manville about the girl, it feels like when he wants to bring Manville back into the fold, it's like Manville won't be a problem anymore. Well, shouldn't it be Manville's expertise he really needs? Yeah. Isn't, doesn't that make more sense that it's, he needs Manville's expertise, which is not the case. It's just more like, ah, it'd be good to have him around. Yeah. But again, that's the kind of thing where it's like you want him to work with an editor to finish it so he can sort of refine his themes. Because yeah. there's a lot in this book that feels like unsure if it's a theme or a mistake you know and Uh, i trust him enough to sort of see the themes in it because i know his work and love his work but i think if you're a first-time reader and you read this it'd be a lot of like what you know i i don't know about that yeah specifically again it's for me it was like how much of this is him actually kind of like having a laugh at the james bond formula or the spy formula and how much of it is that it was unfinished or that he hadn't thought it out correctly. Like at the end where it turns out, I thought the good guys are fucked here. They're, he's actually going to destroy Hong Kong because yeah. he's ready. He set off the timers and that's it. Right. And then he reveals, no, there's 27 minutes left before they go off. And it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, he wants to be able to make sure to get Daniel Foster out of there. He wants to have time to get Daniel Foster out of the, but this is also like, I'm saying another character name that you'll only understand if you read the book. It's so dense with characters and their relationships meaning something. And I think that's why it feels like an intentional commentary on the Bond stuff to me, where there's so many people in Bond films that exist to just like lay down and pretend to have been killed to jump up and have guns at the end mm-hmm. and just to just exist to sort of, you know, get shot and thrown off a balcony. And this book has nobody in it who exists just to be fodder. You know, there is no one in this book who is purely fodder for the overarching battle between Richard Curtis and somebody else. And I think that's what makes it feel like a commentary is if what if you treated a Bond story like the the blue collar people are in it aren't just fodder. And that feels like it must be intentional. That must feel like it's not like he's trying to get around adapting his Bond script into a Bond book by not having Bond in it, it feels like he's interested in something else other than James Bond. I agree. And I think that's really the takeaway from the book for me. Do you have anything else to say about it? Did you notice the uh, clever little bit where he's reading a book called Payback? Payback. He's an Australian imitating the Americans, but I think he's doing a good job. Does that mean he likes the Helgeland version of The Hunter? That's a reference to... uh, Westlake's book, The Hunter, which is the first of the Parker books, which was adapted by Brian Helgeland into Payback starring Mel Gibson. And he has a, just to explain to our listeners that yeah. it's, uh, he has a little, that's also the other thing is that uh, George Manville, the ostensible hero is always sitting around reading crime paperbacks because there's just a ton of time to kill. <laughs> this is a movie that's about like people that are like, I got to get from Australia to Singapore to Hong Kong. And so it's like they're waiting at the airport and then they get a flight 
but she's so feeling constant. a little sleepy, so I gotta wait for her to wake up. <laughs> yeah, so I'm reading the paperback because what the hell else are you gonna do? You right. know, <laughs> just like the crushing tedium of you know we're taking the yacht up the coast to Brisbane, you know, and there's even a one point where Richard Curtis is like, Brisbane's like four hours from here. God damn it! And you'd never think of that in a Bond movie. Like he's got to go from the Gold Coast to Brisbane. How long does that take? It's just a snap of the fingers in a Bond movie. In this, the villain's like, oh, God damn it, I'll take the helicopter and have the boat come meet me there. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> Manville so, in general is like, seems like such a fuck you to Bond fans. It's like his, suddenly he's this badass, you know, he just suddenly whips out a gun and he's like, you know, scaring these seasoned henchmen, you know, these seasoned mercenaries. And I feel like it's Wesley like being like, yeah, well, what makes Bond so fucking great? You know, yeah. like what's what's why is he so such a super superhuman? Yeah, Could anybody conceivably pick up a gun and take over the situation. Well, that's what I feel like. There's a bit of John McClane to it, and also it was funny because that open happens on the boat. He's in a boat, in a kitchen. He's using kitchen implements on this boat that's under siege. And I thought we got Casey Ryback on our hands right here. <laughs> we got a Casey Ryback on our hands but it's not that it's not that really at all the one thing oh this is the only other thing that i felt like i really connected to westlake's other work when richard curtis the first time he's been like a glad-handing charming billionaire he's like a richard branson type like a sort of larger than life character who's exudes a lot of charm and then we have that first scene early on where he things are going bad and he flips the fuck out and he flips out, and I think it's the Chinese captain who kills himself because he's so distraught with guilt at having been asked to commit a murder sees him. It's either that or George Manville. Somebody sees him flipping out and is really disturbed to see him flipping out. It's like, wow, that's so much like the scene in The Stepfather that he wrote the script for, obviously, where she comes down in the basement and sees Terry O'Quinn flipping out all of a sudden, and you're like, oh my God, this guy's genuinely scary. Yeah, nice, nice, yeah. But other than that, it's sort of, it's hard to connect to a lot of his other work. So I guess that could could bring us to, what is your dessert pairing for it? After you've read the book, what's a good thing to sort of bring your, your meal to a satisfying conclusion? Uh, well, I think I came up with a pretty good one. It's Care of Shane Black, another writing hero of ours. Um, yeah. I had recommended these recently, so I started reading them, and I'm really glad I did because I could recommend them here. Even though Westlake and Bond are maybe not a great pairing, it's interesting, it's interesting to think of Richard Stark and Bond, specifically in that Bond and Parker are interesting contrasts to each other. Bond is, you know, this wants to suck in life. He wants to make love to all these women, wants to smoke yeah. every cigarette, you know. But he, when it comes to yeah. the actual job... Smoke every cigarette, drink every drink, fuck every pussy. Yeah. But when he comes to the actual job of saving the world, in the Ian Fleming books at least, he is really put out. You know, like he, yeah. he really hates his job. It's well, that's why he's like, got to get some eggs and get some sleep. Constantly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think he would much rather like chill out at a casino table and drink himself, you know, into into uh, sleepless sleeplessness, <laughs> than you know actually go out and do something that would help people. It's kind of an interesting contrast to Parker, who you know, for all superficial accounts is a complete blank slate, who is somebody who does not engage with people like normal a normal person would. 
and seems to have yeah. no enjoyment beyond the job. And for him, the job is everything, you know, for him yes. to be. When the job is on, he does nothing. Well, it's always says after the job is over, he's a satyr. A satyr. It's still so gross to me. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but that's the point the is that the job for him is the whole thing, right? Exactly. So, as, so it would be interesting to see a combination of these characters, I think. And we kind of get it in uh, a series of books called uh, The Quiller Books, written by... Oh. Elston Trevor was his real name, but he writes under the name Adam Hall. I don't know why he decided to un-British his name so severely, but uh, Elston Trevor is his real name. And the first one's called the Quiller Memorandum. They all have, you know, sort of snooty kind of titles like Robert Ludlum type titles like that. But they're really good. They're about these, um, this uh, spy named Quiller, not his real name, but again, a one named character like Parker, who is a very Parker-like character where he, you know, really has no feelings or emotions toward anything that doesn't have directly to do with what he's tasked with in any given situation. And he's a very, like, stark and violent character, much like the Parker uh, character is. So I would recommend the Cooler Memorandum for anybody who is a fan of Parker and James Bond and kind of want to see. And to I'm see sort sorry, of what, what, what era are they written? Are they new books that are sort of knowing about this stuff? Or are they written in the 60s? They started in the 60s and there were 19 cool. books. So they went all the way up to, I want to say the beginning of the 2000s, but I can't, I'm not exactly sure. But, but like Parker, they did stretch across three or four decades. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So definitely worth checking out it's just mentioned to um just for an alternative bond book colonel sun written by kingsley amis is actually a really good book i really like that and i think it's a would be an interesting they kind of taken like little parts of it for some of the bond movies but they haven't adapted it directly but it's an interesting read cool my dessert pairing is maybe a little obvious but i think this is interesting to read uh one of westlake's john dortmunder novels in the context of this, uh, the seventh Dortmunder book, Drowned Hopes, which is about oh, a nice. Dortmunder has been tipped off to some loot that is in an upstate town that was flooded by the reservoir. They were like building a reservoir, so they flood this town. So he's got to go underwater to get this loot, right? And Dortmunder is the contrast to Parker. He's the guy that everything goes wrong for. They're like comic novels. If you know Dortmunder, the Hot Rock, the Robert Redford movie is based on a Dortmunder novel. And that's, the tone is more like that. They're books about everything going wrong. And Drowned Hopes is good. It's not the best one. It's, it's an interesting one. Sort of the underwater theme I like with it. But it's also just, it's a, almost a, um, an ensemble piece. It's about this small town where Dortmunder sort of gets trapped trying to get this this heist together and it's got a really vicious sort of antagonist to it uh a, a guy he knows from prison named jimson tom jimson is the antagonist in the book who's sort of like a a partner antagonist and it's good it's 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 a book that's uh reminds me sort of like a little bit what I think he's going for with forever and a death about these sort of the complications of this big group of people. And it's fun and funny and it's got clever and very memorable heist uh, in it as well in a way that, in a way that like you mentioned forever and a death sort of is not necessarily interested in its heist. The Dortmunder books are also not necessarily interested in the heist other than as like a cherry on top of the other problems. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That it's sort of like the last fucking thing to go wrong, last and biggest thing to go wrong. And I think it works in the Dortmunder books and it works in Drowned Hopes where it's just not the focus. The focus is not on the thing you would think would be the focus, but sort of all of these people swirling around it and sort of all of the twists and turns of just trying to get it together. Yeah. And we just should throw props out to to hard case crime, which is a fantastic publication to yeah. Charles Ardai and Max Phillips for getting this material out there. This is the third uh, Westlake book that had been unpublished in his lifetime that they have published since the other two being a book called memory and one called the comedy is finished, which are both worth reading very yeah. much. So, um, they didn't do somebody owes me money that they did, but that had been pre- published previously. Oh, published that's previously. A, that's a re- reprint. Yeah. But that is a fantastic book too. I mean, everything they've brought out is great and they're going to, um, next year they are republishing brothers keepers, which is his monk, uh, caper novel without the caper. Uh, oh, really? And I, I hope beyond hope that they publish under its original title, which is the felonious monks. Oh no. <laughs> I can get behind um, that. Yeah, one thing I should say is that this book, if you're interested in Westlake, definitely read it if you're a Westlake yeah. fan. Oh, without a doubt. Like it's not, it's not, it's not a misfire. There's some of the unpublished books. Is I love Hard Case. I love that they're doing the unpublished stuff. I love that I get a chance to read it. Some of it you're like, oh, that was should have stayed buried, you know. Yeah, but you there's definitely some like that. But with Westlake, I think we've. And been, this you know, is not it. This is no, not it at all. No, and I definitely would say read Memory, which I just read recently, and it's. It's weird. It's a strange book. It's almost like a 60s Frankenheimer movie. And it's yeah. kind of like weirdness, you know? It's very not Westlake at all, but it's fantastic. It's very up my alley, and I think people would enjoy it. So it's it, it feels, because it's funny, we get all this background as to why this book wasn't published. We really don't know why this one didn't come out. And I think, you know, it's just, I can't imagine a publisher in the 60s who would want anything to do with it because it's... Yeah, weird, that that weird and interesting. That's cool. That's a good way of of um, a phrasing that. Yeah, and I should mention, you know, just because we should talk about it a little. There's an afterword in Forever and a Death that's very long. I feel like it's like twenty pages almost. That's explaining like the history of this book, quote unquote, from the producer who had hired Westlake to make uh, the Bond film, and that's worth interesting in reading like the it's almost worth the price of admission on the book just in and of itself to hear this guy's perspective on trying to get a bond movie made with Westlake, who obviously in the early 90s is uh somewhat of a of a screenwriting property coming off the grifters and the stepfather that you know i know golden eyes a little later but he still would have been that would have been the height of him as a as a screenwriter in this era and it's fascinating it's fascinating to hear that guy sort of take ownership of this novel that clearly has nothing to do with him or the work he did with Westlake apart from a few like surface elements and hear his sort of like soft no on why they didn't make the Westlake script. You know what I mean? Mm. To hear that sort of like bizarre, glib, self-congratulatory producer speak all the time and just realize what, People like Westlake are against us. their whole it wasn't life. For us. Yeah. 
<laughs> we were worried about in the context of the GoldenEye video game, you know, like these kind of statements that are just like, you know, that a great writer like Westlake must be up against it. And he also seems to have no awareness. He talks about like how Westlake sends him this detailed treatment at the beginning. I think he says it's like 55 pages or something like that. And how it's very well written and passionate and it's a great treatment. But Westlake hasn't read many treatments. So we really needed him to rewrite it like what other treatments are like before we tried to move it up the ladder. And so he gets this second treatment from him. And he's like, and it was weird. It was like 20 pages and very terse. And it's clearly like Westlake is like, oh, fuck this. You know, <laughs> like I am going to my bare minimum, you know, like what's the minimum amount the treatment needs to be? 20 pages? Done. There you go. And that point you know? that he was just like, and fine, Bond goes to Australia and he gives him an explosive boomerang. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And it just, it feels, it feels like he's like, gotcha, take it or leave it, because I'm already checked out. But the producer doesn't seem to understand that, like, anyone could be not as excited as him about Bond. Like, he seems to have no awareness of how Westlake, who he professes again and again to be a huge fan of, right? And that's also producer speak. Every producer is a huge fan of everything they've ever seen or heard of, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh doesn't seem to understand like why doesn't have any insight into like what Les Lake would bring to Bond or why this book would be produced by Bond. He's sort of like anybody like, ah, it needs it, you know, I wanted more George Manville. There are more opportunities for him to be a badass. It's kind strange of thing, that which he, is a reasonable response to this. Yeah, book. it's strange that he specifically cites like a, the very Westlakean idea of, you know, uh, the Dortmunder formula, the bank robbers can't find a parking space. You know, like that sums it up. Yeah. That sums up the Westlake, you know, thing. And it's like, that guy sounds perfect for James Bond. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a weird and disconnect there. It is. It was it's interesting to hear that they, they tried to develop uh, adaptations of the Stephen Saylor detective novel set in ancient Rome, though. That sounds like it'd be a little bit more up Westlake's alley. It would be kind of interesting. Yeah, there's a few projects he mentions that are like, oh, I would have loved to have seen that. Maybe it's like the the Westlake Bond novel that it sounds like, oh, that'd be interesting. And then you get it and you're like, ah, that's very different than what I was picturing. <laughs> of course. So, but it's it's fascinating. This is a good, this is a good hefty book I got here on my desk. And so I would, I would, I would recommend checking it out just for the interest and i would recommend too like if you're in a section where you're a little bored you know skip that chapter and <laughs> find find colin and yeah. uh and you'll be in good shape and like we said with the carrier uh frankenstein books you know it's interesting it's definitely worth reading try to read 20 to 30 other things by him first <laughs> yeah <laughs> after you read all of the parker novels through butcher's moon and four of the random dortmunder novels and the axe then you go ahead and you pick this one up exactly. <laughs> or if you're a huge bond fan that would be another thing that i was sort of interested you know, you're a big Bond fan, John, and I was sort of thinking, oh, it'll be interesting to hear a Bond's fan perspective on this, but it's just not a Bond book. It's just no. not, no. you know? Not at all. Literally nothing tying it to it. Even, even with the Richard Curtis character, if you're going to say, well, you know, he's like a mega villain, the characterization of him is just not a Bond villain, <laughs> you know, very specifically. Yeah. It's very it's, realistic. Yeah, it's realistic and it resists that. 
very specifically yeah. in a way that's very interesting and it makes the novel interesting. Yeah. Not for, but not for someone who goes in there thinking it's going to be a Bond book. Yeah. But again, maybe if you're a Bond fan, it's the reaction you and I had of this is a really interesting commentary on that sort of book and movie. Yeah. And I think it is, ultimately. I agree. Cool, man. Anything else? Do we need to? We don't know what we're, we know what Pulp Fiction we're doing next month, correct? We do. Should we announce it so people can read if they want to read along? Let's do it. We're sticking with the hard case crime, right? Yeah, absolutely. This is a republish. This is not a previously unpublished, but I think it was a very rare book, very limit, limited publication of this book by the great Charles Wilford. Right on. Understudy for death. Sticking with the hard case crime theme, sticking with the death theme, we're going to be talking about Understudy for Death by the great, the immortal Charles Williford. Yes, I think my favorite crime writer of all time and probably right up there in my top five favorite writers of all time period. And uh, we're excited to read that. It is a new one for me. This is one of the very few ones I have not read in any capacity. So I am excited to dig into it and if you want to read along too that is a uh, an option for you now and we will i'm sure we'll find an interesting movie to talk about next month as well i'm sure we will cool man this was a fun conversation john i think i think these pulp fiction podcasts are working out very well and i'm glad we're doing them at least <laughs> cool we don't we don't need we don't need the audience's approval it's a story of it's a story of john and chris is what this show is okay awesome we'll talk soon man all right <laughs>